Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson that are currently taking place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Courts building in downtown Los Angeles. As these trials wind down, we are bifurcating our coverage of them. On today's episode, we hear from our correspondent Molly Miller and a special guest about developments in the trial of Harvey Weinstein. That's all coming up right after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We begin today's installment with Molly Miller and her look at the latest witness testimony in the Los Angeles trial of Harvey Weinstein. So Molly, for the rest of the Weinstein trial, you're going to report about it in a different way from how you've been doing it to date. Would you explain how and why your approach to the trial is changing? Sure. So I showed up at court on Monday, November 14th, and the hallway was already packed with news outlets. We're talking not just the typical three or four journalists that were typically there, but probably 20 reporters. And they were all there to see Jennifer Seibel Newsom, California Governor Gavin Newsom's wife. It turns out that her publicity team notified some of those big news organizations. And so they turned out in droves which meant that ultimately the court was too full for me to even get a seat in the gallery and see her testimony. So I wanted to interview someone who witnessed Newsom testify firsthand. And I also knew that I had some additional professional obligations coming up that would make it difficult for me to get to court in the coming weeks. So let me tell you a little bit about the dynamics between the reporters who have been there day in and day out. We have people on Substack. We have a woman from Law and Crime. We have LA Times reporters. We have a TikToker. We have Terry Keith from City News, who is kind of the godmother of all of the journalists at the criminal courts building. She knows everything that's going on. And it's been fascinating because all of these people have very different news outlets, and you would suspect maybe some animosity between all of the different outlets, but everyone's really come together. And I think that's in a large part because of how severe and strict the court uh, bailiff has been, that under all of this pressure and scrutiny, the reporters have had to band together, kind of like kids in a third grade classroom with a really strict teacher. So We've all bonded. We've gone out to brunch together. We've hung out together over lunch. And I've gotten to know a lot of these reporters. And I wanted to choose someone to interview about the testimony and to help us out who I thought would really give us both an intelligent but also a very candid perspective on the Weinstein trial. 
And the reporter that I chose to interview is a woman named Lauren Hurstick, and she's going to help us out with coverage. And would you give us a bit of background on Lauren? Sure. She is a reporter from The New York Times, but she's also a Peabody award-winning screenwriter. She's reported on the Cosby trial, Britney Spears' conservatorship, and generally she has just a sharp perspective on current celebrity trials. But most of all, I think she's smart, funny, and candid in a way that always makes me want to hear her take on everything going on with Weinstein. Okay, thanks, Molly. Stay tuned, everybody. Molly Miller's conversation with New York Times correspondent Lauren Hurstick is coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now, here's Molly Miller's conversation with New York Times correspondent Lauren Hurstick. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. Cool to be here. So we are coming off a big news week for the Weinstein trial. As I've said before on the podcast, all the reporters have been waiting for the testimony of Jane Doe 4, who has publicly identified herself as Jennifer Seibel Newsom, wife of Governor Gavin Newsom. Now, the prosecutors wouldn't tell anyone when she was going to testify. It was this big mystery. And finally, this week, she took the stand. So Lauren, tell us about the atmosphere in court on the days that Jennifer Seibel Newsom testified. It was wild. It was a complete 180 from everything I'd seen leading up to it. We'd been in court for like almost three weeks until then. And the vibe was very muted considering how high profile of a case I thought this should be. And then once we found out Newsom was going to be there, it was like, trying to get tickets to Avatar on opening day. So, you know, we arrived early. There's probably three times as many people as we're used to at the end of the hall. And uh, I went to sign in. I'm with the New York Times and saw the names on the list ahead of me. And these are way bigger news outlets than we were used to. Bigger than the New York Times? (laughs) I know. I forgot I was one of them. But I saw saw Dana Goodyear from The New Yorker. And I just like, I fully fangirled. I had to like stop her in the line and be like, are you Dana? I'm such a huge fan. I'm sorry. Oh my God. But yeah, it was like crowded. It was exciting. There was gossip. There were like tons of people in the media line, tons of people in the press line. There were these two giant guys with earpieces like flitting around and we figured out, oh, okay, those must be the bodyguards. You know, the media line was typically all the media outlets. The public line is where it got kind of weird and fun. You had all these people in like pretty expensive looking business casual. We had um, Beth Fegan, who is Newsom's lawyer in her statement glasses. She wears these red glass frames. And then there was uh, this other crew that I see at all of the sexual assault trials. They're this group of survivors 
um, of just sexual assault survivors. And uh, Lily Bernard is the one that I always see. She was there. She is a Cosby survivor. She has a case pending against Cosby coming up probably next year. So she and about four or five other women were there and they just go and sit in on these trials to support the Jane Doe's on the stand just in solidarity. So they filled out a lot of the line. So that kind of was the balance of who was there trying to get in. There was very limited seating, a lot of drama amongst the overflow media regarding who was going to get in and who wasn't. So let's dig into the testimony of Seibel Newsom. So how did she meet Harvey Weinstein? She met Harvey in the mid-2000s, around 2004. And I think it's important to know a little bit about who she was at this time. She was 31. She was an actress. She had been acting professionally, Said she said, since she was 28. Um, she, it was mostly TV parts, but at that point, she was also an ind- independent film producer. Um, she was, like, working in the industry Some of the other fun facts that came out during testimony or cross-exam was that she allegedly dated George Clooney. She was formerly on the U.S. national soccer team. Wow. She's a Stanford graduate. This is her vibe in 2004 when she meets Harvey for the first time. So she meets him at the Toronto Film Festival in around 2004, 2005, She's there with friends. She says she's she's at a bar standing around with her friends and she describes the moment they meet as the Red Sea parts. And then there he is. And it's Harvey Weinstein and he makes a beeline for her and she knows exactly who it is because everyone knows exactly who it is. Everybody knows Harvey Weinstein. This first meeting, he invites her to a second location. She goes to a bar with a friend there and that's when she gives him her number. And when she was asked, why would you give this guy your number? She was like, he's Harvey Weinstein, which is what everybody says. Everybody always says he's Harvey Weinstein. So after this initial meeting, they exchanged messages for a bit. I think he flew to New York after that. She said he went to, quote unquote, somewhere in England to quit smoking. And then after that, he made plans with her to come to L.A. And so this is in, I think, around September 2005, He comes to L.A. and he first texts her when he arrives. I have a gift for you, she said. And so she she said, "Okay, well, you can come over. I live in WeHo. So then Harvey Weinstein shows up at her little West Hollywood bungalow where she's having like a party. And she said it was super awkward. He comes inside to give her this gift. It's a book. And she said it's a book about Louis B. Mayer, the film producer. And on the stand, when she brings this up, her voice cracks. And she was like, ironically, he is also a sexual predator. And she started weeping. And then the defense objected to that. And so he like comes to her home, steps inside. She says, it's very weird. He leaves really quickly. And then shortly after that, she gets an invitation from him to come meet him at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And at that point, there this is like the dramatic irony for everyone sitting in the gallery because we've heard the same story over and over again. Like the first red flag is come to the peninsula. Yeah. So walk us through uh, the alleged assault. So she goes to the peninsula. This is 
September 2005. And she's walked us through all of these facts in the testimony, like pretty articulately. And then as soon as we get to this point in the story, her voice cracks and she's like instantly very emotional. And so she arrived at the peninsula. She's expecting to have a business meeting at the bar. But instead, an assistant comes down and says, Harvey wants to meet you in his suite. And so she's taken upstairs to this suite that she keeps describing as really opulent, that she had never seen anything this opulent. So she gets into the suite and then she says the first red flag that she saw is that she's sitting on a couch alone and she sees that there's room service with a silver bucket with champagne in it. So Harvey comes in, he sits down on the couch next to her and she's assuming they're about to get into a discussion about her projects. She says she's had all these projects. She's filming in Africa. She's developing in India. She's been to South America and a really impressive resume that she seems to have been really excited to tell him about. But as soon as they start talking, he's distracted. He's not into it. It's clear that this conversation is not going to be about anything related to her career at all. And then she says that he abruptly gets up and he says, I'm going to go get more comfortable. She said he disappears around the corner. And then she says that he's around the corner and she hears him say, can you come help me? So she gets up, she goes around and he's in the bathroom and he's in a bathrobe. And she says she can't really tell. He's like backlit. He's like maybe bending over. And then she gets a good look at it and he's not wearing anything under the bathrobe. Uh, He's touching himself. He's jerking off and he's grabbing at her, trying to make her do it, trying to make her touch him. She's terrified. He's just like groping at her, grabbing at her. And then she describes this, she kept calling it a cat and mouse game that he was almost like chasing her around the room. And then it became like a negotiation where he was kind of like trying to coerce her instead of like chasing her down coercion with a conversation And she said he started talking about his ex-wife and his brother. And so she said that she starts to engage in this conversation because she just, she says she wanted him to have some empathy and to see her as a person instead of like an object. Then she said he mentions all these other actresses and how he made their careers and they all did this. And if you want what they have, this is just the way that it works. And that's what you have to do. And she described it as this like mental jujitsu, just trying to stay afloat and dodge him in this whole conversation. And that at a certain point, she's just too exhausted and she gives up arguing. And uh, the way she describes it is that he either, she can't remember if he carries her or drags her to the bed. Somehow he gets her on the bed and he forces himself on her. And then in the telling of this, it was like almost unintelligible. She was, she was sobbing. She was yelling. She was gesticulating wildly with her hands. She was, I can't imagine what it was like to tell this story and have Harvey in the room looking at her. Then she describes what happened that she, he, you know, he gets her on the bed. He forces himself on her. He touches her over her underwear. She kind of bats him away. And then he, he pulls down her dress And he penetrates her with his finger and with his penis. And he forcibly goes down on her. And she said that just in the end, she ended up faking an orgasm just to get him 
to finish and get it to be over as quickly as possible. I mean, again, it's it's the same pattern we've been hearing, the same lines we've been hearing uh, from Weinstein. The other actresses have done this and this is how they became successful. That seems to be his his go to line with these women. And the whole pattern of I'm going to get more comfortable and getting into a bathrobe and and luring them into a bathroom and then things escalating from there. It's it's so creepy. It is. And the fact that it is a pattern and these like major details repeat over and over again across the stories, like as much as the defense tries to pick apart their narratives and their memories and the consistency between details the major bullet points remain the same. And so it's pretty convincing that this, if he, if he did this, when he did this, this is how he did it. So tell us a little bit about what happened afterwards. What was her relationship like with Weinstein after the alleged assault? So she was in the industry when she met him. So going forward, he was around. He's the biggest producer in Hollywood. And so she would run into him at industry events, Mm -hmm. film premieres. She saw him at Toronto again. She ran into him at Cannes. And she said in person, she was always trying to keep it cordial and professional. And she just kept reiterating, you know, he's Harvey Weinstein. He's Harvey Weinstein. He's just so powerful. And she was afraid that he could like ruin her career. But when asked like, why, how did you maintain this relationship? How could you keep up that vibe? And she just said, I was raised to be polite. And that's, what I did. So overall, what was your impression of her testimony on direct examination? What struck me is that, you know, she's really beautiful. She's delicate. She's clearly very smart. She's very well-spoken. But then like, as soon as you get close to describing the events of the assault, she's just instantly like this open wound, this raw nerve, and it splits open. And, you know, on the one hand, when she's talking around the assault, it feels like she's had a lot of time to process it and she does have the language to talk about it. But then on the other hand, like the trauma is just below the surface is just spilling out of her. It's disorganized, like word vomit. It feels very immediate. She used a lot of the same terms over and over again. She was like talking about her trauma a lot. She talked about, she kept saying that she took the memory and put it in a box, just put it in a box, put it somewhere else, moved on with her life, kind of compartmentalized so that she could just get on with it. But, you know, in the retelling and revisiting of it, she reiterated again the same thing all of the other women said that they felt. She said that she felt frozen. She felt paralyzed. She was numb. It was like an out-of-body experience. And then after that, she felt this incredible shame and she was really embarrassed about it. The emotion in the room was palpable. I think everyone was like right there in it with her, even, you know, the sheriff's deputies who are pretty stone faced, even I think they were a little bit moved by it. She was a good storyteller. You know, the prosecutors were walking her through the telling and asking their questions, but she was able to craft a narrative that was like easy to follow for the most part and, you know, had some standout moments. I think it was effective. I actually mentioned to my editor during opening statements that the prosecution seemed to be using this tactic of like telling the story almost exclusively in these women's own words. Like when they did the openings, they read quotes and they played recordings and they just really let the women speak for themselves. And I think that that's exactly what they did here with her. 
and it worked. That's a fascinating take. So what happened on cross-examination? We've got worksmen uh, examining the witness, and this is a man who has called Jennifer Seibel Newsom a bimbo in his opening statement. So how did he treat her on the stand? What was his attack like? Tell us everything. Oh, my God. Day two was a big day. It was a long day. Um, yeah, I know. Like, Worksman was the one who did call her a bimbo in open court. But I think in the weeks since then, he's kind of played good cop to Alan Jackson's bad cop. You know, Alan's like a bulldog, kind of an asshole. He's very aggressive towards these women. He has no problem. And then they'll bring Worksman up and he's just kind of like, let's be reasonable. Let's talk. We're just having a conversation. Let's just talk about it. It's fine. Um, So he was the one to do cross. And I think that kind of maybe set up like a false sense of security. But um, he started out with the same tactics that they use on all the other women, like poking holes in their stories or bringing up how the retelling has changed from one time to another, like telling the cops, the grand jury, the testimony here, just kind of like confusing them on the timeline. But the main thing that he did, and it was rough to watch, but he he pulled up 68 emails sent between Newsom and Harvey Weinstein since 2005. Oh, 68 emails. Yes. Oh. And he spent... Two and a half hours going through each and every one of them, breaking down what was in it. What were you thinking when you sent it? Why would you send it? Quizzing her on every single message that she sent or that her assistant sent or that was like auto sent to a list serve. It was like a death by a thousand cuts because it was so boring and it was so meticulous. <laughs> like she it was just exhausting for her. And I think at a cer- certain point, like she knew exactly what he was doing. She knew that it didn't look good for her. Probably by hour two, everyone was just like, yikes, lady, this this is not going your way. Uh, clearly, there was a relationship there, whether it was professional, personal, etc. Tell us, was there anything substantive in those emails? Yeah, it was it was a little bit baffling to see the language that she was using and the way that she was engaging with him. You know, she would initiate these back and forths. She would reach out to him proactively. She'd refer to him as honey. She'd be like, Hey honey, how are you? Great to see you. So lovely running into you. She's like proactively making plans with him. It's not the kind of victim behavior that one would expect, but that brings us to this concept of rape myths, which the prosecution did bring in a psychologist expert witness to talk about that. Yeah, they brought in Dr. Barbara Ziv, and she testified about all of these rape myths, one of them being that we have this understanding, this cultural assumption that victims of rape never again contact the rapists, right? And that that is a myth. Sometimes they're in their social circle or even in their family. And so it's unavoidable. But I would imagine that this one's tricky because she is proactively reaching out to him. Yeah, it's it was tough and it was easy to forget that, like holding in your mind this concept of rape myths and that victim behavior is not what you'd expect. Two and a half hours of why did you behave like this can make a listener or a juror think, 
yeah, why did you behave like this? Why would you reach out to him? Why are you trying to network with him? You know, she said, oh, I was hustling. And Worksman was like, you were hustling with the guy who violently raped you? Like, what, what is the explanation for this? And it did play into his hand a little because what he was trying to do and what he said explicitly a number of times was that she was intentionally using her relationship with him to get ahead professionally. And so I think they want to prove that if someone went in there with the intention of using him to get ahead, that that already means that they're consenting to the experience. So how does the prosecution respond to all this on redirect? You know, I feel like they were on their heels a little bit at the end of this because it just was like such a long, grueling day. And by the end of it, she was so flustered and... So we got so in the weeds of like, can you explain this correspondence? Can you identify your email? It was so kind of like dry that her demeanor was more confused and like a little flighty, just kind of trying to explain this away. Like she was uncomfortable that she's a smart person, but doesn't have an explanation for these things that on their face should be easy to explain. And I think everybody in the room could tell that it wasn't playing well with the jury. And so it seemed like the tactic on redirect was to just like bring it back to where we were on day one to get into that like immediate visceral emotional place. So they just brought her right back into getting her into the headspace of the moment when the assault happened. They were asking questions like, did you go to the peninsula to have sex with him? Did you fuck him to get ahead? Did you want to have his penis in your body? And she's just screaming, no, no, no. Like rapid fire, no's. She's sobbing. And by the end of all this, end of the day, when the judge dismisses her, she storms out of the room, absolutely sobbing with like her 12 people in her entourage following behind her. It was like incredibly dramatic. In total, how do you think that the jury responded to all of this? Well, obviously, they're hard to read because half of them are wearing masks. So you kind of got to read the body language and sort of read their eyes in a way. Day one, they were definitely affected. You could hear sniffling in the room. You know, I think I could see some of the jurors like looking down or looking away. They just they seemed like physically uncomfortable watching this woman have this breakdown right in front of them. But then day two, you know, they went home, they had some time, they had a breather, they had a break, they come back in, and now they have to sit through hours and hours and hours of like bone dry administrative work, basically, that like, does not make this witness look good. And from what I could tell, the jury was not having it. They I think it was a combination of them being tired, them being bored, and kind of forgetting what happened yesterday. And... I think a lot of it has to do with the way that she presents herself in a way. On direct testimony day one, she walks in and she's just like this delicate flower in this like this very expensive camel trench coat, just like swaddling her like a baby. And she's like this tiny baby bird trying to be strong, telling this story and but just breaking down. It's a, she's very empathetic in that moment. But then Conversely, on cross, same woman, but now you have this expensive looking rich lady with her 12 person entourage in her fancy trench coat who can't remember which international film festival she was at when. And she's like, oh, I sent thousands of emails to thousands of friends and I raised so much money. And, you know, she just is kind of unable to explain her comings and goings in these 
elite Hollywood circles, I think if you're just a regular person from somewhere in LA County, like this is not relatable. And she's taking up a lot of your time. And so I think it was really effective for the defense. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear from Molly Miller and New York Times correspondent Lauren Herstick about the testimonies of the final prosecution witnesses in the Los Angeles sexual assault trial of Harvey Weinstein. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was reported and written by Molly Miller. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.